0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 11th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. This week marks 50 years since the first newspaper articles revealing what would eventually become known as the Pentagon Papers. We're still feeling the effects of the Pentagon Papers and the jurisprudence they inspired. Cato's Julian Sanchez and Pat Eddington detailed the enduring importance of the Pentagon Papers. Why should people make note? of the Pentagon Papers and its aftermath?
1: Well, it still stands as arguably the most important First Amendment case in American history. And it also uh, was really, I think, kind of the beginning of the end. In fact, it was the beginning of the end of the Nixon administration. Because in the quest to go after former Marine Corps officer turned RAND analyst uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, Richard Nixon unleashed his hounds to go after Ellsberg and to get, try to get his uh, actually order to break into his psychiatrist office and all the rest of that. And so that puts us on the road essentially to Watergate and, and Nixon's demise. So hugely consequential, not just because it affirmed the right of the press to publish uh, classified material but it gave us the ability, ultimately, to see just exactly how quickly
0: and easily a president can self-destruct in pursuit of a whistleblower. Uh, why was the publication of this information so controversial, Julian?
2: Well, so the uh, what, what we know now know is the Pentagon Papers. Uh, I think was actually had the rather uh, banal title of a report from the Office of the uh, Secretary of Defense on on, Viet- on the Vietnam. Uh, war and it was it was prepared as a history of the conflict in in the, the late sixties um, to document for uh, future uh, policymakers, but uh, really revealed the extent uh, of deception of the American public across multiple presidential administrations um, that uh, the US had been involved earlier in ways that had never been reported in the press in uh south vietnam's internal affairs that um it had engaged in uh, illegal bombings in cambodia and laos uh that uh you know, even as johnson was pledging on the campaign trail no wider war plans were being made to in fact escalate uh the war in vietnam uh you know, so all these disclosures uh Showed, I think, the extent to which the the uh, the war had been uh, deceptively uh, prosecuted, and also the extent to which the sort of the United States was remaining in the war um, largely as a face-saving exercise. Uh, you know, and sort of listed the reasons to stay in. At the, sort of, the very bottom, it was you know, well-contained China, and I suppose you know, there's some value to having a, a freer and happy life for the for the Vietnamese, but it was primarily uh the idea that it would it would be a humiliation for the United States to uh, to admit the uh, defeat effectively. Uh and so that was hugely significant, but also of course the, the sort of second order um the second order effect of understanding that the government had claimed uh, the sort of dire national security interest it had obviously illegally gone after Ellsberg by wiretapping his phones and breaking into a psychiatrist's office, but also gone after him in court uh, charging with espionage. It was because of those uh illicit activities effectively the charges were were ultimately dismissed uh having sort of so tainted the proceedings that the court the court tossed them um uh, but also going after the New York Times, as Pat mentioned, uh, attempting after the publication on on June thirteenth, uh, uh, nineteen seventy one, uh, of the first New York Times article based on uh, the the uh, these documents that Ellsberg had photocopied in his office at Rand over a period of uh, uh, an extended period. Um, the next administration sought to bar any. Uh, uh, further articles based on that material claiming, again, uh, you know, some grave harm to national security might uh, might eventuate if uh, if this were permitted. Uh, And, you know, I think it's it's pretty hard objectively to look at at what we now know and say that that was justified. It seems really that the um, the underlying principles was, in fact, quite embarrassing uh, to the government. And it was you know less less an issue of uh, a concrete harm to security and more a question of uh, not wanting that embarrassing information out and wanting to set a a, a precedent that um, you know, such such a publication could be barred uh, and you know, this is a pattern we've seen going back to the very origins of the state secrets privilege back in uh, in, in the early fifties uh, the, the The first place we really get a a, a firm uh, legal foundation for what we now know as the state secrets privilege, allowing the government to effectively refuse to turn over information it would otherwise be obligated to in court, um, stretches to uh, a case called USD Reynolds from 1953, uh, where the widows of three civilians who had been killed in a military plane crash in Georgia um, sought to sue the government. And the government effectively was able to toss the suit, claiming that uh, this would reveal information that was essential to national security, reveal the secret workings of a of military aircraft. Uh, and it, it, the court essentially accepted this and said, OK, no, we find this privilege of the government to protect its national security secrets uh, and tossed this lawsuit. And, you know, looking at it was only nearly 50 years later, around 2000, the, the The report from that case was was released, uh, and it's it's really very difficult to say there's anything in there that was, um, you know, critical national security information. It was uh, just demonstrated the the negligence of uh, of the government uh, in in the incident. We've seen, I think, pretty pretty consistently over time that uh, while, of course, you know, there are certain things the government does need to keep secret to sort of execute its legitimate functions, core functions of of protecting its uh, its citizens, um, that this, you know, perhaps necessary uh, uh, privilege um, very often becomes a shield for embarrassing facts that governments wish to hide from their people.
0: Uh, Pat, speaking of embarrassing facts, the government has continued to engage in problematic behavior since the release of uh, these documents now 50 years ago uh you know what do we have access to what do what are people able to evaluate for themselves that they might not otherwise be able to do had the pentagon papers not been published had this very public fight not occurred
1: well i i i think you know to go back to something that you know julian just talked about which is this whole reynolds case from 1953 one of the problems that we face in terms of being able to actually get information out to the public is this kind of pro-national security judicial activism that gives us uh, garbage rulings like the Reynolds case, right? I mean, they literally, government officials literally lied to the Supreme Court of the United States about why that plane crashed and, and what was actually so special about the plane. And there was nothing special about the plane except the lousy maintenance job they did. And they hid that uh, you know, not just from the families of of the uh, of the service members who died as a result, but they got themselves this this magic uh, hide anything you want to essentially from the public kind of capability. That you know, even something like the Freedom of Information Act, which was actually passed uh, five years before the Pentagon Papers case, even something like the Freedom of Information Act cannot actually penetrate. And I think it's worth noting. Um, that that the, the ramifications essentially of, of trying to get information out uh, that, that flowed from the, uh, from the president of the Pentagon Papers case is continuously under assault. And it's been under assault, especially uh, in the so-called war on terror period, in the, in the you know, post 9-11 period. We saw that first, of course, with what uh, Chelsea Manning uh, ultimately leaked um, to WikiLeaks, which was you know, the uh, Army H64 Apache footage. Uh, over the Baghdad, I believe, it was the Baghdad area, showing the gunship crew actually murdering civilians uh, and some uh, and some journalists, I believe, who worked for Reuters at the time. And they slap a, a secret classification on that tape and use the secrecy essentially to hide a war crime. Um, and and if we fast forward essentially to what Edward Snowden ultimately did. Uh, in, in 2013, which was to expose the unconstitutional mass surveillance, among other things, uh, being perpetrated by NSA and the Department of Justice. Again, all of this taking place under this rubric of secrecy, uh, this, this, this shroud, essentially, that the government tries to draw over its activities. And I think one of, the, one of the things that continues to just enrage me about it all is just how readily federal courts show deference to all of this, you know, we we had a, a ruling again coming out of the FISA court uh, in May, and and you know, Julian I know has written on this, uh, whereby again we learned that that the FBI engaged in a fairly massive use of searches of the of the FISA uh, Section Seven Hundred Two database um, to keep tabs on people in the absence of any kind of criminal predicate, and the and the FISA court again, for at least the second time that we know of in the last ten years. Let's them get away with it. No one is sanctioned. No one loses their job, Uh, and I think this is what really causes an uh, an enormous amount of rage and frustration. But in terms of actual tools uh, available to the public by itself, I think uh, the Freedom of Information Act uh, and especially litigation, particularly in this age, really are the primary ones. You know, we have a Congress that is entirely too disengaged on these issues when they're not acting as a cheerleader for the persecution of people like (laughs) like uh, Julian Assange and uh, and Edward Snowden. Uh, they're sitting back and, and basically doing nothing to address these issues. If you actually go back just quickly and kind of look at at the difference between the reaction to Ellsberg and his revelations on the one hand and Snowden on the other, it's absolutely stark. It's absolutely stark. The number of hearings in Congress that were ultimately uh, uh, launched because of, of these revelations and, and that put us on the road to what would ultimately give us the church and Watergate committees, all the rest of this massive activity of, oversight and reform that took place between 1971 and 1978 stands in stark contrast to what happened in the wake of, of what, uh, uh, of what Edward Snowden did in 2013. We had no meaningful public hearings, uh, by Congress on this issue. And, and we had people like then house intelligence committee chairman, Mike Rogers, basically, uh, lying to the public, telling, telling the public that, uh, Snowden had actually given information to the Russians even though that was never alleged in the indictment that the Justice Department issued against him. So uh, it's tough getting this stuff out. It's why having whistleblowers is so important. What we need are greater protections for whistleblowers. and, And we can get into that, I think, as we go forward here in this podcast.
0: Speaking of protections for whistleblowers, I can recall years ago, and I may have mentioned this to either of you, then U.S. Representative Mike Pence suggesting that reporters, uh, and had filed legislation uh, to that effect, in some ways saying that reporters shouldn't be held liable for having published uh, or received information that was classified. And and yet we
1: have seen an aggressive effort on the part of first the Obama administration and to a degree the Trump administration uh, to go after journalists, to target their communications, to try to uncover who their sources are and so on and so forth. So uh, you know, would a a reporter shield law, which it's essentially what you're talking about there, you know, would that be, um, uh, I think a something that the Society of Professional Journalists and the uh, investigative reporters and editors would they welcome that? Yeah, absolutely, they would, and I I do think it's something
0: that would be very helpful. Julian, when these cases cases like this go to the U.S. Supreme Court, there is a oh, there is still a massive amount of deference that the court gives to. Broad assertions of national security—that's
2: oh, absolutely right. And you know, I, I was just thinking of the uh, this was pre Snowden, but uh, the first challenge to the the kind of precursor legislation to what became Section Seven Hundred Two. Of, of visa the authority to effectively get uh, general warrants for uh surveillance of uh foreign persons outside the u s including in communication with uh, American citizens in the united states uh, and if you look at that decision now uh, amnesty v v clapper uh, a case where various uh, uh, civil society organizations challenged the legislation on the on the grounds that they were uh likely to be uh uh, target, well, not targeted, but likely to have their communications swept up in the process. Um, and, and that this violated their, their Fourth Amendment rights, uh, in, in the process. Um, you know, th- if you read that opinion now, uh, there are a lot of factual assertions about how Section 702 surveillance worked that the court accepts that we now know post Snowden are just not, not true are not correct. Um, They asserted, for example, uh, and they make mention of this, so presumably the court thought this was relevant to their reasoning, um, that uh, one would not be swept up in surveillance unless one were in direct communication with a foreign target. Uh, We now know that is not, in fact, how the system worked. They were engaged in something called abouts collection, meaning uh, if you had a communication that mentioned the foreign target or an identifier, like their email address, um, that could get you swept in as well. So the court effectively made uh, a decision based on uh, uh, a a misrepresentation and a misunderstanding of of how uh, the program worked. But I think, you know, Pat's point about the FISA court shows that, um, you know, apart from its deference on these sort of factual judgments, um, there is a kind of deference on equities questions. So, you know, Courts look at various kinds of tests of compelling interest or grave harm uh, when uh, balancing interests and making decisions. Um, There are, you know, in the abstract, of course, there is maybe no more compelling interest than the national security, you know, broadly construed. Um, And the problem, of course, is that judges not being experts in the details of national security, not necessarily wanting to uh, impose their own judgment over that of you know, actual military uh, experts, or what is the likelihood that some disclosure um, would, in fact, cause a grave security harm? Um, and also, in a sense, I think a fear of perhaps being responsible uh, if that harm occurs, Um uh, you know, leads to a situation where almost any claim, however sort of facially implausible, uh, is is treated with incredible deference by the court. Um, I think the 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 Fisk opinion that that Pat referenced, you know, finding a lot of compliance issues and, and violations of procedure with respect to NSA surveillance, but nevertheless going ahead to authorize uh, that bulk surveillance, you know, comes out of a culture where and we've, we know this from former FISA court judges and government lawyers do say things like, well, you'll have blood on your hands if you don't grant uh, this authority to, to surveil this target. Uh, and the structure of that statute is that you're, it's not just uh, a single target you're authorizing or rejecting surveillance on, but literally hundreds of thousands of targets in a programmatic way. And so you've got, you know, the court in the position of, of having to decide, well, if I, find, as perhaps the evidence would would indicate, um, that, you know, this program as a whole is very hard to to find, um, find consistent with a prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures of American communications um, that you then shut down this entire thing this uh w- which you know may lead to the loss of valuable intelligence um i mean there there is genuinely useful intelligence collected uh, via this via this authority um but you know it puts the thumb on the scales i think in a dangerous way and we find i think the same thing to do with secrecy the same kind of incentive operates both within the courts and within the the military intelligence bureaucracies right no one has ever lost their job for classifying too much information if you let something out that proves embarrassing or indeed genuinely harmful to national security you'll certainly be accountable for that um but if you decide you know you'd better classify the the softball schedule just in case um you know you're not going to lose your job for that uh and you know from the court's perspective um you know they 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 are more fearful of of the risk of letting something out that is harmful than of keeping it secret in part because if you keep it secret um no one can then point at you and say hey that didn't deserve to be secret at all um they the public may assume that there is some good reason it's secret um but you know if you look at the history of documents that were that have, have been declassified over time and you ask yourself the standard for, you know, secret and top secret classifications is supposed to be, um, is this information that if disclosed would cause grave harm or exceptionally grave harm to the National Security interest of the United States? Uh, I think you will be very hard pressed, uh, you know, pick pick your favorite declassified document and, and ask yourself, um, is it plausible uh, that every part of this? Would, if disclosed, cause grave harm to the national security of the United States. That is the formal standard, but I don't think any reasonable person believes it is the standard in practice.
0: Okay, so, Pat, we want embarrassing failures of our own government that, have, that do not implicate national security to come to light. And the Pentagon Papers certainly presented us uh, an opportunity to essentially protect people who bring that kind of information to light. Uh, but there, are, but as Julian said, there are legitimate cases where the government needs to keep things secret for the purposes of executing on its promise of delivering national security. I think we have to make some distinctions between
1: um, that which is legitimately classified um, to actually protect a completely perishable source and method, for example, um, Versus misusing deliberately and with malice of forethought, misusing the classification system to conceal waste, fraud, abuse, misconduct, uh, uh, and even criminal conduct uh, and things that, that embarrass the government. And although we have an executive order that uh, explicitly prohibits that activity, Executive Order uh, 13.526, uh, which is the one that governs the use of the classification system, it's just that. It's an executive order. It is not statute. And there, to the best of my knowledge, has never actually been an investigation uh, of of any individual who's engaged in overclassification for the purpose of concealing the very kinds of of misconduct and problems that we've been talking about. And I I think, uh, you know, to kind of go back to what Julian uh, harped on very nicely, there is this whole issue of judicial deference and and the the fear of of being wrong. I would think that after the last the history of the last fifty years of the so-called national security state we ought to be doing a much better job in our law schools uh, of of teaching folks hey this is when they lied this is how they lied this is the pattern and practice of their lying uh if you get on the federal bench you know don't take their word for it and if you're concerned as a judge you have the authority to retain what's known as a special master essentially uh, uh an independent arbiter who can assist you in evaluating whether or not these claims are uh, are credible, and in fact, one of the one of the few useful things that I saw in, in USA Freedom Act that was passed in 2015 was the creation of this this kind of of overall capabilities. One of the very few times I've actually seen it put in in statute in connection with any kind of uh, national security related activity, I think it ought to be mandatory in the same way that I believe that it ought to be mandatory for every judge to have to conduct in camera reviews uh, in FOIA cases every time the government makes a B one or national security related. Uh, assertion, you know, if material is is twenty five years old or older, uh, it's subject to mandatory declassification review anyway. Uh, so we really need to have a, a fundamental sea change in mentality and culture. And you would think that in the fifty years since Daniel Ellsberg did what he did, we would have had enough folks go through successive Congresses, and we would have had enough folks pass through the federal judiciary that they would have learned that your job is not to take the word of the executive branch. Your job is to oversee the executive branch and make sure that they're not abusing this authority and this power. But we just don't have that. And I I have to point out that our colleagues on on the criminal justice team just last week published this devastating uh, report on exactly how radically out of balance uh, the federal judiciary is uh, in terms of the number of, of former prosecutors who have become judges. I mean, it is absolutely astounding the imbalance that we have here So it helps. I think it really helps to explain in so many ways why we see this deferential attitude on the part of federal judges. That's because so many of them are former prosecutors, and so they're going to give the benefit of the doubt to the government and makes it impossible in many cases to actually get what I would really consider to be a genuinely fair, impartial hearing on the claims of the parties involved in these kinds of cases.
0: Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Pat Eddington is a research fellow at Cato. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.